Church, open your Bibles. We're going to be back in the book of Ecclesiastes today. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, if you want to find that in the scriptures, we're going to be there a moment. I'd like to follow up with an email that I sent out earlier this week. I know many of you saw that. Thank you for responding uh, to me, many of you. Um, We had the passing this week of uh, a dear member of our church, Al Brobeck. And on Tuesday night, I was with his family. Um, He had been in the garage and he'd been getting up into his attic, and it appears that uh, his ladder slipped, and he fell off of the ladder and fell to his death and passed into glory that night. And I was with his family. You can imagine the shock of that. Dad otherwise was in fairly good health. Mental acuity was there. And so, uh, anyway, it's a tragedy for the family, and I ask you to pray for the Brobecks. I reflected this week, and we're still reflecting today, I think, a little bit on all of this, and there's a couple things I think that, uh, that I'm ruminating on. Uh, one thing is uh, that Al is uh, in, in glory today. He's being reunited with his wife, other loved ones. He's in full health, uh, meeting the Savior in person. I mean, that is just like something for all of us. If we know Jesus, that's something we all long for. And so we are looking forward to that day. And that is a, is a great, great thing. And so, again, I'm, I'm sad for the family today. I'm sad for the loss that they have. They didn't get more time on earth with Dad. But, boy, am I excited for what's around the corner for him and what's around the corner for us also. The other thing I think that I'm ruminating on is Al and Judy, um, they poured into this church countless decades of ministry, whether it was leading a Bible study, counseling people in person, teaching classes, going on retreats, or even leading some retreats. I mean, there's a lot of things that that couple did, and they were some of the earliest kind of founding, initiating members of our church. And so again, our hearts go out, our thanks go out to all of the hard work that they did. What that also means is is that the baton is being passed. The passing of Al, I think, signifies for me, again, that a younger generation is coming on board, and a younger generation is now having the baton passed. And I'm asking, I guess, the question, if you're part of that group, uh, will you accept that baton? Will you pour in to continue to make CCF a place where God is honored, where people are loved, and maturing disciples are made? And that's what I'm hoping for, and honestly, I'm seeing that happen. And I'm seeing that happen with, with much joy in my heart. Now, don't get me wrong, um, there's a place for you always, and it's not like if you're past a certain age, you're done. I will tell you, Al was my elder chairman in his 70s. So I got to know Al very, very well as he was an elder chairman with me into his 70s. So, I mean, you've got a lot of mileage still to go, even if you're uh, past retirement, and that's a great thing. And there's lots of opportunities, again, for you to glorify God by ministering here at CCF. So anyway, just a few things I'm thinking about related to Al, and I don't know the details yet of his service as a memorial service, but I would anticipate that we'll learn about that this week, and as soon as I know that, I will be passing that along to you. Well, your Bibles are open. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and I am continuing in a series in which I've called Chasing the Wind. There's this one little word, you're going to hear it again repeatedly today, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but I'm going to continue to do that because the word is so important. And that little word is repeated again and again and again. And if you're reading in your translation, chances are good that your translation says either vanity about that word or meaningless. 
And if you've been with us the last two weeks, you know that word is Hevel. Here it is. And I'm going to have you say that again because I want to cement that with you. And so that Hebrew word is Hevel. Say it with me. One, two, three. Hevel. And uh, that word, again, is a, a squishy word. You wish you could kind of get your arms around it. But it's saying something. I think the best translation of that word, if I'm just to choose one word, is vapor. That's what I've argued with you for the last couple of weeks. And what that word is implying is that there's a, a frustrating nature of trying to get your arms around life. There's a fleeting nature of it in which you're trying to corral life and you can't quite do that. And that's why, again, vapor is, I think, a very good analogy for that word because, again, you can see that vapor, but you can never quite grasp it. And two weeks ago when Pastor Eric was on stage with, uh, well, uh, with one of the kids and, and they were trying to use the dry ice, it gave us a great image of what that word really means. I've also said it's like chasing after the wind, which is, again, in the book of Ecclesiastes. And who, who can direct the wind? Who can catch the wind? That is, nobody can. And that's the idea of, again, why that idea of Havel is so uh, pressing. Well, let's remember what Solomon is doing. Solomon is saying, I, in all my wisdom, pursued all different avenues of life. And in my avenues of pursuit, I want to report back to you about those different aspects of what life is really like. And so again, we've been covering different aspects of life. Last week we covered pleasure. This week we're going to cover work. Now, as we begin to think a little bit about work, there's been some iconic people who have talked about work, and one of them is Dolly Parton. Raise your hand if you know who Dolly Parton is. I know that there's some young people, and you're going to be like, okay, that's an old person. I don't quite know who she is, but she's still alive today, and you'll see her at Music Awards fairly regularly. And she sang a song that I think epitomizes what most of us feel about work. The song is called 9 to 5. It's a 1980s song. I think you'll enjoy this. And I stumble to the kitchen Pour myself a cup of ambition And yawn and stretch and try to come to life Jump in the shower and the blood starts pumping Out on the streets the traffic starts jumping With folks like me on the job from nine to five Working nine to five What a way to make a living Barely getting by It's all taking and no giving They just use your mind Dolly Parton, yeah. I think what I really enjoy about that is a little blast of the past in some of the fashion, right? Perms, shoulder pads. I mean, hey, the 80s had some uh, pretty iconic fashion. Dolly Parton talks to us about work, nine to five, and the, the, the drudgery of it, the grind of it, and that's what, again, is uh, going to be some of the topic here today. Now, of course, right now, we're in the midst of what's called the Great Resignation. 
Some of you have heard that term. And what it means is, is that people are quitting jobs. Now, again, not so quick. They're not like quitting jobs to retire necessarily. They're quitting jobs to find better jobs. So they're just shifting around in our economy right now. So again, you have individuals that are restaurant workers that are now uh, seeking a better job. You have individuals that are school teachers that are working for Amazon. Kinder care is now off to UPS. And so again, there's this shift as we notice people you know, looking for better jobs on the market today. Well, work is something that encompasses all of humanity. It's a major part of all of our lives. And again, in most Western cultures, people will work, meaning they go to a workplace, for about 40 years of their lives before they retire. And uh, again, it's, this is a statistic, but 20% of people will work after 65, and many of them will continue to work because, well, they have to, but some will continue to work for a very small pay or even no pay because, again, they just like work. I mean, work is something that is, is meaningful for them or there's something that they're benefiting somebody else by their work. Work's a part of the fabric of life for every culture, every generation. But in today's passage, Solomon says there are some very frustrating things about work. There's some things he says that, well, quite frankly, I don't like. And they're a conundrum to me. And so, again, they're frustrating for me. And I want to, again, tell you, Solomon says, about the true nature of work. I'm picking up chapter 2, and I'm in verse 18. Let's listen as Solomon talks about his frustration with work. He says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? Yet he will be the master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity or uh, vapor, I might say. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What, is a man from, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils under the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vapor. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting only to give it to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Denise and I have been to Cuba twice. We love the Cuban people. And one of the things that we heard very repeatedly in Cuba is a little saying that the Cubans love to say to one another. And it is this. We pretend to work and the government pretends to pay us. And remember, this is a socialistic country and so everybody kind of gets the same pay. And they say, you know, that's kind of the nature of Cuba is we kind of pretend to work 
And the government kind of pretends to pay for, uh, pay for things. And, uh, you know, that is not necessarily a great marriage, but that's what they do in Cuba. I'll never, I've never met a person who does not struggle or is frustrated at some point in their work because work can just be hard. Solomon identifies two frustrations with work. Maybe you've already picked them up because they're pretty clear in the passage. Two frustrations with work, and I'm going to begin today in the middle of the passage, then I work my way back to the front of it, because I think if we start in the middle in verse 22, we have the best idea of kind of gathering everything that he has to say about his frustrations with work. His first frustration with work is work is toil. And this is what he says, beginning in verse 22. What is the man from, from all his toil and striving heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity or vapor. Most people expect work to offer some sort of purpose in life. And, and to some extent, maybe it does. But I, that's really what we, I think, all anticipate that work will be. That's why when you meet somebody, you say, you know, hey, what kind of work do you do? Or what do you do for a living? What do you do for a living? That's a very, very common question to ask. And we're asking, you know, that's part of probably identifying who you are. And I think men especially uh, are, are attracted to that or identify with that that our work is somehow a part and parcel of what we are. That's perhaps why, I think again, especially for men, maybe happens with women too, but especially with men, if a man is ever laid off or he's fired, man, that puts him in a tailspin. Because it's as if you've chopped part of his body off uh, is what it feels like to a man. Because again, we're wanting to have some level of identity around our work. Work is hard, work is wearisome. And it is on several fronts. He says it's like a toiling under the sun. And we might imagine somebody doing some back-breaking work out underneath the sun. I know somebody this week that was digging ditches in the rain. And I guarantee you that was no fun. That was hard work. That's the very definition of work right there. Yet work also has, beyond its physical demands, it has mental demands. It's what we might call, or Solomon calls, striving of the heart. And no matter what kind of work you do, it's going to take some level of mental energy. And that's why some of you come home at the end of a day, and you're like, you know, I didn't do almost anything physical at all, but I'm wiped out. And why am I wiped out? Because I used so much mental energy in making sure that things were going well at work. Hard work is exhausting both for the body and for the soul, and yet Solomon uses uh, more words in order to be able to explain this. He says that uh, it's a sorrowful thing, and it's a vexation, he says. Those are two words that he uses. Sorrowful in the sense that, you know, it's going to take all of my energy, and and it's going to ask the question, you know, what happens if I get laid off? Or even if I have too much something at work, too much work to do, like how am I going to get it all done? And so it's creating this level of sorrow and anxiety on the inside of Solomon. And he says that's what the nature of work is doing with all of us too. I can still remember my first job, and I worked for my uncle. And one of the first things I did when I showed up that summer in order to work for him, he, he was a farmer and he owned a, a lot of fields in which he grew fruit, peaches predominantly, and he put me in a peach field, and he said, it's time to irrigate this field. We're going we're gonna to pump water across this field in order to water it. And he says, I need for you to step into this field and prepare it for that. 
and a, a, earlier a tractor had gone around the field and had created small little levees. They're called dikes. And uh, these the small levees is what would keep the water in from flowing out all over the place. But every time that a joint met like this, well, it wasn't perfect, right? That would not contain the water. And so that took a handheld operation in which you had a shovel and you went and filled in that little gap right there in the levee. Now again, this is my first maybe a couple days of work and here I am and he puts me in the field and he says, take a shovel and fill in all of the levees. And he said, I'm going to start the pump over here and you should have plenty of time for before the water gets to you. Uh-oh, uh-oh is right. I've got this shovel and I'm kind of doing my shoveling business, but I'm looking out of the corner of my eye to the water that's making its way. And I'm petrified. I mean, what is going on here? And, you know, what has he done? He's put a kid out here to do this. And I'm just shoveling away and I'm seeing the water get closer and closer and closer. I'm like, oh my gosh, my first assignment, it's going to be a disaster. And about two hours later, he showed up and he had a veteran worker with him. And I remember that veteran worker just showed up and he showed me how to use a shovel, all right? He was a bulldozer, and I was like a little play shovel guy. I mean, he just went, boom, 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 boom. And he just, you know, bam, filled in all the rest. And the water, you know, finally got to us, but it got to us without a major disaster. And that day, I just, again, I learned the, the value of hard work. I learned the value of, of what it means in order to have somebody that really knows what they're doing. And again, the work, it's taking muscle. And at times, it's taking a level of mental uh, damage to us even because we're worried about being able to accomplish it and being able to uh, measure up, as it were. That's a sorrowful side, again, of work is that there's all this going on. Sometimes there's relational struggles at work. I bet some of you have had those before, and those are no fun. Relational struggles are one of the things that are, again, very sorrowful. Solomon even says this. He says, this can even follow me into my sleep. Uh, each, even at night, I can have my heart that's not at rest. And I'm just wondering if you have ever gotten so keyed up that you're up at night over your work. I have. In fact, I can tell you, early on as a preacher, this was one of my common dreams slash nightmares. I was usually at some kind of a big gathering. And it was a food gathering, so there was people that were kind of eating and around tables, and you know, I was having a good time. I was eating there too, and I was kind of checking everybody out and kind of taking it all in. And somebody would step up to a podium, step up to a microphone, and they would say, you are so glad that you're here tonight. And you know, as a special treat, Pastor Brian's going to come and share a few things with you. And I would gulp, and I would say, nobody told me that I was up right now. And so again, I was like, I'm, I'm walking to the podium and I've got a nothing burger and I don't know what to do with that. And so again, there's this anxiety on the inside of just saying, wow, you know, can I do this? Now, you'll be happy to know I, I don't have that dream nearly as much. In fact, I can't even remember the last time I had that dream. I don't know what that says, but I, again, maybe it says I'm a little bit more mature than I was a few years ago. But again, that idea of having dream be so overtaking that it even enters our dream life, that's real for all of us. And again, I I, I don't know what your dream is about work. Maybe it's about some pressure or deadline or a presentation you're giving, and that can affect you. He also says, of course, that it's vexation, meaning that it's an irritation or it's annoying. Perhaps it's often annoying because, well, we have so little to show for it. 
We go to work, we seem to put out all this effort, and there seems to be so little that really is accomplished. We go and it's like moving the rock up the hill uh, all day, and then you come back the next day and it's back down at the bottom again. And you're moving the rock up the hill, and you're coming back the next day and it's down at the bottom again. And it's just that repeated cycle over and over and over. I'm a real fan of the Flintstones. I kind of grew up with the Flintstones. And so I have a picture here of Fred Flintstone at work. And Fred Flintstone went to work every day, and I think he moved the same rock all day long. Uh, This was him on his brontosaurus. I had to look that up. And there he is. And, you know, the quarry kind of never changes. Uh, You never really even see anything other than him moving a couple of rocks around. And sometimes the brontosaurus has got one in his mouth, and he's moving it or on his head. And this is the way it always ended with the Flintstones. This is the way the day always ended right here. And he would go sliding down off the back of the brontosaurus. And what did he say? Yabba dabba do. Because now work is finally passed and I can get on with really what is life. And he would be off. And you can see his foreman in the background that's got that little bird that he's pulling the tail on. And it's squawking out that it's the uh, end of the day. It's uh, time to go home. And so again, Fred Flintstone is reminding us that For many of us, and many times we experience this, work just seems to be a drudgery. It's the same thing over and over and over again. We ask ourselves the question, what difference am I really making? What difference am I really making? I sold a few widgets today. I had a few plans that I helped somebody with. I sent some emails or I made some phone calls. How is that valuable? And so work at its core sometimes feels like it is a, a toil. It's something that... Uh, is drawing something out of us. It's downright hard work. And so again, he's saying that's one of the natures of work at its core. But there's a second big problem with work, and now's when I'm going to move back to the first part of the passage, back to verse 18. And he says the second big frustration or problem with work is that it is not fair. And it's not fair because of this, because sometimes you leave the results of your toil to somebody else. And you have no control over the person necessarily that you're going to leave it with ultimately. This is the way he says it. He says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be a wise or a fool. Yet he'll be the master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. And so we work very hard. We accumulate and we die and everything is left to somebody else. And who knows how it will be spent, or who knows what will happen to it. I saw this firsthand at my father's death. My father, well, actually before he died, it was actually when he was, knew he was getting ill and needed to move out of his place. He died a number of years later. But anyway, he was moving out of his mobile home, and uh, he needed to move rather quickly in order to go to assisted living, so all that was in his mobile home was there. I went in and took as much as my little car could take, but I, you know, that's all I could really take. And so the rest of it, I said, well, you know, this has got to go somewhere. So I brought in uh, an auctioneer who was going to do an estate sale with it. He walked through the house. He labeled everything out. And he said, you'll get 35% of everything that we have at, that, at, at the auction. And I think uh, it was probably a year later. It took a long time for us to even get the money. A check for like 1800 bucks came. I mean, and so that was the sum total of, again, all of what dad had. And again, I just remember thinking, man, that was a lot of life that was just kind of, you know, left with very little there. And, you know, it's one thing to wonder about where your hammer will go. 
It's another thing to wonder about where your whole life savings will go. And if somebody will squander it, if somebody will be foolish with it. And that's one aspect, again, of what we pass along is an inheritance. But there's other things that we also pass along. There's other things that we work hard with and that we build upon. Uh, Maybe you've built a department at work and you're passing that along to somebody else. Maybe you have a system of organization that you've developed and you're now passing that off to somebody else. Maybe you've got a well-oiled team that's on all cylinders and you're getting ready to pass that to somebody else. You leave something of great value and then you're hoping that they don't go and tank it. Let me give you an example of that. Perhaps it's on a little bigger scale than what's happening with you at your work. But this is an example on kind of an international scale of something that's passed along and didn't go so well. Venezuela is a gorgeous country in Latin America. I have a picture of Venezuela right behind me. It's a very pretty spot. It's got many, many uh, natural resources that should make it one of the wealthiest nations, uh, certainly in Latin America, maybe even in the world. Most people don't know this, but Venezuela has the eighth largest oil reserves in the whole world. It's got the second largest gold deposits in all of the world. It's got plenty of beautiful land that agriculture could be thriving. It's got even a tourist industry that used to be fairly robust. But then the government was passed along to two guys that made decisions that debilitated the country. And I've got those two guys here, Hugo Chavez, who's now dead, and then the one that followed him, which was Nicolas Maduro. Let me tell you about this country that should just have, you know, all of this wealth oozing from it. Uh, This is hard to believe. We are struggling right now to believe that or think that we may be in an inflationary period with about 6 or 7% inflation. And for Americans, that's intolerable. There's no way that we're going to uh, want that to continue. We're going to beat that back down until it gets down to 2 or 3% again so we can sleep at night. Well, I want you to check out what the inflation rate is in Venezuela. Get ready, 3,300%. 3,300% a year. I mean, that's just unfathomable. I don't even know how to put categories around that. To give you an idea, 87% of the people live below the poverty line. And to give you another metric here, of the population of Venezuela today, 75% of people have lost, on average, 19 pounds over the last decade. So again, think about that. It's just there's not enough food for people to actually eat. And so the population of people under these two leaders has suffered so greatly. It's as if, again, they had this crown jewel handed to them, and they just went away and squandered that and made some very bad economic choices for the country, and it put it into a a very bad tailspin. Well, that's one thing that could be passed along. A country that's pretty big. Uh, In your case, again, you're passing along something you've worked hard on, maybe around your business or maybe around an organization that you work for, and you're passing that along to somebody else. But let's go back again to the inheritance because I think that's what Solomon has in mind. Solomon has in mind that he's going to die and he's going to be giving this to some of his heirs. And he's saying, this is the problem with that, is you don't know who you're going to give it to ultimately. I mean, maybe you do in the sense that you're going to give it to your kids, but you don't know what happens with your grandkids or your great-grandkids, or again, some others that are perhaps part of your will. And again, many of you are thinking about this right now. You've maybe created a simple will, or you've created some kind of a trust, 
And you're going to join Solomon in saying, I'm not completely sure how, uh, how all that's going to work out. I hope it works out well, but I'm not sure that all the future generations are going to be responsible for this. There's a saying in several different languages that conveys the same idea. It, saves, it conveys the same idea about wealth being passed through three generations. The English says this, or the, in, in English it says this, from shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. Meaning that you started with shirt sleeves, you probably got important enough and had enough money that you moved to long sleeves, and then in three generations you were back to shirt sleeves again. Here's the way the Chinese say it, from paddy to paddy in three generations. Meaning from rice paddy. You got out of the rice paddy, you worked your way up, and now after three generations, you're back at the rice paddy again. And it's just a, a common way of saying, again, you have no control over how the wealth is spent in years to come. And it's not hard in three generations to see it all gone. And it's not un uncommon, again, for even wealthy families to experience some of that. Let me give you an example. It takes an extraordinary person to squander a fortune that they didn't create. But that's exactly what Clint Murchison Jr. managed to do. I've got a picture here of Clint, and I'm going to tell you about why he's with uh, that football helmet here in just a moment. He is the offspring of Clint Murchison Sr., who was a notorious oil baron in Texas, and he amassed a fortune of, well, that was passed along to him of a half of a billion dollars, and by the way, that was in the 1960s. So you can imagine how much money that would be in today's dollars. Let me tell you some of the things that he inherited. He inherited the Daisy Manufacturing Company. That's where the Daisy BB gun came from. And who had a Daisy BB gun? Anybody here have a Daisy BB gun? Some of us older dinosaurs, we had that. I, I remember that. That was one of my little favorites around my house. I lived out in the country so I could do that. Uh, the, he inherited Field and Stream Magazine. He inherited two different oil companies. But Junior did not have the business acumen of his father. In fact, the greatest thing that he did was he started the Dallas Cowboys football franchise. So, I mean, that seems like that's a pretty big stroke of genius, right? I mean, so in 1960, he is the guy that uh, in the NFL is the recipient of the NFL Cowboys franchise, and he is the guy that puts them on the map. Now, here's the problem with that. He did not have a good sense for uh, the value of the team and when to sell it. So he sold the team in 1985, and he sold the team for a pittance, and he had to sell it because he had to pay off some debts. Little did he know that the Cowboys franchise would become the most valuable franchise in NFL history, worth today $7 billion. So if he could have just held on a little bit longer and known where things were going, he might have been well off, but he managed to squander a half a billion dollars from dad. And you can imagine dad, the oil baron, rolling over in the grave as his son is dying penniless after receiving so much. We wrongly think that everything that we have belongs to us and that, well, we, we can manage it all the way through our life, maybe even past our lives. But little do we know that sometimes the slacker gets it and it doesn't end up well. Solomon says, it's just Havel. It's unfair. It's frustrating. It's a chasing after the wind. I don't know why things work that way, but that's the way that they do. And Solomon himself even experienced that because his son Rehoboam 
ended up having a civil war in the country that split the country in two pieces, and he ended up losing 10 of the 12 tribes, kept two of the tribes, as Judah and Israel are now split. So he would experience that. Little did Solomon know that his very son would be the one that would be one of the ones that would lose so much. Well, he says, those are a couple of frustrations, is there any hope here? Is there anything that is a glimmer of some good news here? And well, yes, there is, because in verse 24, he picks up, and out of the blue, there is something that comes like rays of sunshine. With all of the drudgery that, that Solomon is talking about, suddenly just light just comes pouring off the page, and this is what he says. Verse 24, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? And so you're looking at that and saying, now hold on a second here. You just talked about frustration, frustration, frustration. Now you're getting to verse 24 and you're, you're changing your tune. And which is it? Which way do you have it, Solomon? Is this good or is it bad? I'm trying to figure this out. Charles Dickens in his writing in The Tale of Two Cities uh, has this opening line. It's the iconic line. It was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. And it's like asking Dickens, well, which was it? Was it the best of times or the worst of times? And his answer would be yes. Uh, yes, it was. And many times, we see both of those coexist at once. And Solomon is telling us that today, that both of those are coexisting with him. And he's saying, I was finding out all of this frustration and drudgery with work, but then one thing changed. I changed my view in one way, and stuff started to make sense to me in ways that it never had before. What was that small switch that he made in his view? Well, it's the words from the hand of God. He says, I, I ate, I drank, I even toiled, but I did it with viewing the hand of God. So what made the difference? God made the difference. And upon the scene, up until this time, Solomon had been trying to find pleasure outside of God. He tried to make, eke out some sort of meaning, some sort of benefit from work, but he couldn't do it. It was impossible to have that happen. But now he brings God into the equation, and all of a sudden there is some sort of benefit around eating and drinking and seeing these as gifts from the gracious hand of God. And of course, we have all kinds of advantage over Solomon, because, well, we have the New Testament. And the New Testament talks very repeatedly about good things coming from the hand of God for our enjoyment, for our meaning. These are two of the passages that I have, starting in the book of James. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And so James is telling us something. We've got all these good gifts that are being poured out to us. Even work itself is being poured out to us as a gift from God and it's being given for our benefit. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. And so again, the New Testament is positioning again work and again uh, things that are pleasurable to us as something that is from the hand of God and they're not simply for, again, uh, our, our, ourselves, but they're for the benefit and the glory of God in our lives. It's easy to get caught up with our own ambition, my work, my ambition, my schedule, my deadline, my paycheck. But when we switch our view and we say, but God, then God has a role in that, and God has graciously given me something. And, and work is no longer just havel. It's no longer just vapor. It's something that has some semblance of purpose and some semblance of beauty. Without that, work can turn into a colossal frustration. 
Solomon told us today that, again, work can be havel, it can be vapor. He said it's full of toil, and at times it's just not fair. Every time we are sick of doing the same thing over and over again, we've tasted havel. Every time that we're inconvenienced by somebody else's incompetence, we're tasting havel. Every time that we are facing a, 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 an employer that seems to have some very unreasonable demands, we're tasting havel. Every time we come home from work and we're just tired, we're facing or tasting havel. It's all vapor. But Solomon says something to our surprise. The hand of God supplies good gifts. And it's not beyond us to, to, to see those gifts and embrace those gifts. It's something as simple as a good meal with perhaps friends and family. Or it's such a thing as having a, a day of work in which you loyally serve and there's some benefit for that. It's such a thing as maybe walking down at the Edmonds Beach today and saying, this is a gorgeous location. This is from the hand of God. All of those are gifts. So the moment that you begin to experience life is when you begin to see the glimpse of what Solomon really saw. At first he saw the drudgery, and he considered it, again, just a, a colossal frustration. But then he said, I shifted my view just a little bit, and I saw so many gifts that were coming from the hand of God. And so I'm wondering today how you can take a step back and take a look around and see some of the gifts of God that are in your lives today. It's not wrong to be frustrated with work. Solomon certainly was. He knew that work would not bring him the fulfillment that he wanted. All of work, well, it was flawed in some way. And if he was looking for meaning and identity in it, he was not going to be satisfied, and neither will we. But if you look at it, there's always something that is a gift to be enjoyed somewhere. And if you can look for that and find that, it changes your perspective, like Solomon, about what work really is and how it has some level of meaning in your lives because, again, God is using it to provide good gifts for his children. Let me pray for us. Lord, we all resonate with this. Work can be hard at times. And we resonate because it does seem unfair in the way that we accumulate so much and then it is just a vapor on the other end. Lord, we pause today to say you have given us today to enjoy. And there's some gift that you are pouring into our lives right now. We ask that we have eyes to see that, that we have eyes to see that all good gifts come from the Father of lights above, and that we would glorify you today by enjoying what you've given today. Lord, we are a culture in which we are constantly thinking about tomorrow and 10 years from now. Not necessarily wrong for us to do that, but you are calling us back to the source of all enjoyment, the source of all life, and that is you, the good and gracious God that we follow. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray this. Amen.